Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The passion narrative in John chapter 19 is unequivocal. The life of Jesus ended in humiliation, abuse, abject betrayal, subjugation, and utter failure. You might try to comfort yourself by arguing that Jesus was treated unfairly. However, in truth, the outcome of his life was a direct result of his father's teaching. In other words, in the gospel story, following God's Torah leads to absolute defeat. A fact, St. Paul explains, that confounds religious people and attracts scorn from rational thinkers. With this in mind, it comes as no surprise that from the beginning, Christians themselves have failed to embrace the gospel. That this failure is obvious, to be expected, and nothing new does not make it less painful. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 87 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I have been waiting for a long time to get to three digits on the episode count, and it feels like we're about to turn a corner. We're in the home stretch. Yes, absolutely. You know, this Sunday, Father, we had the combination of the exaltation of the cross. We had a baptism on the same day. And I noticed that for you, the reading of the gospel was very emotional. What struck you about the gospel is so emotional? Well, I was frustrated with myself because I genuinely despise public displays of emotion and sentiment. I mean, you remember at my father's funeral, I did not cry. And that's something that was very important to me. I take to heart John Chrysostom's admonition that when something sad happens, he was speaking about the death of a child, and I'm going to paraphrase, you need to basically suck it up and take it as an opportunity to change your ways, not as an opportunity to feel sorry for yourself and lose time and energy being miserable. I know that everyone's going to immediately say in, in an American setting, oh, there's the cycle of mourning and you have to go. I, I understand all that. What I'm saying is how I mourn and when I mourn is my business. It's not for public consumption. I don't believe in the exhibitionism that is now widely embraced in our culture. I don't think it's deeply spiritual to cry. I think it represents a lack of self-control, frankly. Having said that, I was not able to maintain control on Sunday because I'm standing there on the Feast of the Cross having just heard this ancient Traparian in Greek I like the ancient text. I like the Greek text because it introduces tension into the service because there's no masking over with glossy language that is just as destructive as the original text. So we're here to celebrate the cross, something that Christians have been doing since the fourth century, maybe earlier in an informal way. And the cross is all about Jesus submitting to his abuser, Jesus losing, Jesus abdicating power, Jesus allowing people to manipulate him and walk all over him for the sake of his father's teaching. 
and his father, who can wipe everybody out, allowing it in order to make a point. And I was thinking to myself, this is really a powerful gospel to hear on the occasion of one's baptism. So I was happy for the person that was baptized. But I was also thinking about all of the contradictions and all of the impossibilities when you're trying to preach this teaching in an institution. It doesn't work. It just seems I've been involved in so many meetings and discussions and interactions with people in the church. And no matter how much lip service we give to the gospel, at the end of the day, we don't accept it. We don't. And anger is the wrong word because I wasn't feeling anger or earlier as a priest, I would often feel self-righteous. How come no one's following this? It wasn't like that. It wasn't despair. It wasn't exhaustion. It was maybe coming to the realization that if you are serious about the cross and what is being taught here, you can't win. You have to embrace failure. A lot of times in modern theology, we talk about the cross as the stepping stone to the resurrection. We skip over this and we go to the resurrection. But it's interesting that anyone who's been at a Holy Thursday service knows that the passion narratives go on and on and on and on. But the resurrectional passages are very brief. Correct. The gospel writers really wanted to get into our heads the clear failure of Jesus that he was teaching, and that's all he would do. He would never defend himself. And even when he was facing the earthly powers that were ready to destroy him, he wouldn't go against them. He wouldn't defend himself. He completely embraced whatever was the end of embracing the gospel teaching, which inevitably was his death, not only his death, but his cursed death. His death that was the result of judgment of both Jew and Gentile. And The utter failure is something we cannot embrace as human beings because everything is about how we succeed. Everything is about defending ourselves. Oh, how do you be a Christian without being a doormat? How do you be a Christian without giving all your money away and making yourself destitute? And it's always a compromise because people can't embrace the actual gospel, which is, oh, no, 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 you actually do give it all away, you actually do become a doormat, and you actually are destroyed in the end. That's when I hear words like viability, success. How do you know you're successful as a priest? How do you know that your community is viable? To say that I cringe is not accurate. I don't know what to say. I become speechless. What does one say to that? What does one say when your mission is to preach your destruction and you know, there's a tendency with institutions to try to measure success by viability. It just demonstrates to me the futility of institution. That's why I think the gospel functions in order to undermine institution and to expose it for what it is, because it is impossible for human beings to escape their own biology. That's why the word is divine. In other words, it's not from man. It's not human, as Paul says, because as human beings, You can't accept it. You won't accept it. And very few are willing, because none of us accept it, but very few are willing to actually make the leap and allow themselves to look stupid by preaching it. Mm -hmm. Because you can never look intelligent or wise if you don't accept the terminology of viability and success and stability and growth. But viability, success, stability, and growth are the language of Satanas in Scripture. It's the language of Cain. 
I mean, listen to this tension in the early church. Nikos tis vasilevsi, victory to the kings. Now, in modern translations, they'll say the believing kings, or then they'll go further and say the faithful. The Russians say the orthodox. But the original text said victory to the kings, kata varvaron, against or over the barbarians. You might as well just to understand this for those who are listening, to understand this ancient prayer, replace the word vavaron with terrorist. Now, if you have any biblical conscience whatsoever, you should feel very uncomfortable with all the hate speech about Islam right now. It has nothing to do with your religious ideology or who's right or who's wrong. That too is the domain of Satanas. It has to do with hate speech about the other, irrespective of who or what the other is. And here you have essentially a word that's akin to a whole bunch of other racial slurs that J.K. Rowling beautifully sums up with the word mudblood in her famous children's stories. Well, guess what? The word terrorist feels that way if you're a God-fearing Muslim who takes seriously the five pillars of Islam and wants to do charity and wants to take care of your neighbor. And here we're asking for victory of the barbarians. And of course, Dorumanos is the gift. Doron, you please grant or give or gift the king's victory against the barbarians. That is so antithetical to John chapter 19 that even people in the institution understood this and tried to gloss over the text. And so you have translations now that say, grant the faithful victory over their adversaries, which is just another form of triumphalism because depending on who you talk to, you know, in Russia that might mean victory against the Chechnyans. If you listen to the 1812 overture, you have ships launching bombs at each other within the context of this musical depiction of the War of 1812. And then the Russians come with their guns and their ships and their soldiers, and suddenly you hear Soson Kiria playing, just the melody in the background. Is this what John chapter 19 means? O Lord, save thy people and let us drop bombs on the other boats? This is why I shed a tear, because I realize that people imagine that we are better than the Byzantines were. They imagine that we're better than 19th century Russians were. But we're not. And then they say, well, maybe we grant the faithful victory over their adversary. Who's the adversary? The adversary is the devil. Wonderful. So now you're trying to say it's an unseen warfare. But that language also plays out against people who you think are on the side of the devil. The only way that Jesus could chant this Treparian is if it said, God, may you have victory over me. That is scripture. I think that Darwin nailed biology. The point of biology is to multiply and to survive. The thing about Jesus is he neither had children nor followed his will to survive. We say in the Cherubic hymn, let us lay aside all earthly cares. The word in Greek is viotiki, all lifely cares, all biological cares. What this hymn is trying to do is it's trying to teach what the gospel is teaching about what Jesus does. Jesus is giving up his ability to multiply and to survive. And every single institution, all the way down to every single one of its members, is there to multiply and to survive. That's why parishes celebrate their 100th anniversary. That's why 
parishes celebrate. We now are so big. We now have so many members. Now we had how many people at Pascha this year compared to last year? Those are antithetical to what Jesus did. Ketoson filaton. The literal translation will sound weird to English speakers, so I'm just going to smooth it over for the podcast. To keep, to preserve, via tustavrusu, through your cross, politevma, it's translated inheritance, your commonwealth. If you hear this scripturally, if you contextualize this Greek in the language of Paul, the Pauline Greek, what you hear is the posterity of the line of Abraham through Isaac. And so that line now is continued through Jesus, but your point, which is Paul's point, it has nothing to do with biological offspring. It's not about the survival of Jesus's clan biologically. It's about the posterity of Abraham's faith, which is his trust in God's Torah. If you parse what the Greek is saying in this Toparian, it's save your people and bless your inheritance. How? By granting victory to the kings and by preserving your habitation by your cross. It's odd. I hear a lot of translations that by virtue of your cross, but it's not by virtue of Christ. It's by the cross. Well, the word virtue and cross, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. What are you talking about? But this is what I find interesting. How do you bless? How do you save through the cross? That's what this is saying. How do you bless and save through the cross? Well, let's talk about Jesus for a second. How is he blessed by the cross? How is he saved by the cross? Not in any human definition of what save or bless means. You don't wish many blessings upon somebody who is going into the hospital. This is why I like the Traparian because although the Traparian is behaving in opposition to the biblical teaching, it is behaving as the function of the earthly king in the biblical narrative. And so it can be turned on its head to make the point because the people want a Messiah. The people want a king in Samuel, as we discussed last week, and they want victory and God manipulates them and he plays with that language and with the trappings of kingship. He does it in Ezekiel. He plays with the trappings of the pagan gods and the way that he describes this intangible God who is above all gods, as you recall. So in this sense, you can play with it. The problem is the Constantinian language is just unbearable. It's inescapable because we know that in its historical context, it is asking that God grant Constantine victory against the pagans. The story of Constantine the Great, by this sign conquer, he has the dream and the cross appears in his head. And what does he do? He puts the cross on his flags and then goes and fights the war. This is a talisman. This is pagan that you put a symbol on your shield so that you can go and kill more people and chop more heads off. This is pagan. This is the antithesis of Christianity. You just put lipstick on what the Roman Empire was already doing. They took away the S-Q-U-R and they put the cross instead. That's all they did. It was the Roman Empire, but instead of the Senate and the people, they just put the cross. But why does it say, save your people and bless your inheritance? It's the Roman Senate and people. Because the emperor was the savior of Rome, the savior of the people. It's all pure Roman slash Byzantine slash Mediterranean, Near Eastern, imperial terminology. People talk in the United States that one of the reasons why the United States is not as glorious as it used to be, why it's not as respected as much as it used to be, is because we haven't really 
been faithful to our Christian roots. If we were faithful to our Christian roots, we would have much more glory, much more riches, much more success, much more prestige, much more order, much more respect to one's elders, and all virtues would appear. If we would just follow the gospel, our missions would grow. No! That is not what the teaching says. It's the exact opposite, because look at what happened. After Jesus was crucified, everyone left. Correct. They were already starting to leave, but once they saw that, that was the final straw. And then what happens is the disciples are amazed that this happened, even though they were taught that this was going to happen. And then Thomas comes late to the party, and they say, hey, Thomas, guess what's happened? And Thomas is like, well, I'll believe it when I see it. What kills me, Richard, in an ecclesial institutional context, you know me, we work together. What kills me is that I come to the table as someone who has a broad scope of responsibility in the secular world in corporate America. I understand the language of practical progress, objective measurement, and effective execution. I do it on a large scale involving large numbers of people with large budgets. I do it every day under a tremendous amount of pressure. And I struggle in that context, surrounded by people of all backgrounds and beliefs or no belief. I struggle in that context every day. I fight against myself to make sure that we never put our objectives or our financial concerns or our fear of consequence above the love of neighbor. It is a challenge in that context when the stakes are so high in worldly terms, not to run over people, not to forget people, to hold people's humanity above materialism. But we struggle. We do it within my team, within our area, within our groups. We make an effort to do that because we're committed to doing the right thing. Now, you would imagine that if we're able to make that effort in the secular world, within the context of multiple beliefs and no belief, you'd imagine that the church would be a place where it'd be great because everybody is overtly committed to this. In the church, I shouldn't have to do what I do in corporate America, which is satisfy Satanas, that I can cover the material part of the business. The church should be where we understand that it's about the care of neighbor, not about the future. It's about how we treat people now. And that what is for the future is in the hand of God in the politevma of his teaching. This is what we fight for. What is this habitation? What is this city we're hoping that God will protect? We talked a long time ago about Zechariah and this city that God establishes. And he says, don't build walls. I will be a wall of fire around it. I will protect it. Which, of course, makes no sense. Because you say, oh, we don't need a police force. God will take care of the criminals. Oh, we don't need locks on the church. We'll let God take care of the burglars. There were people who talked this way during the communist revolution. Let the communists take what they need. Let the gold be melted down for the poor. There were people in Russia who were willing to do that for the poor at the hands of the communists. They understood. But this is all too rare because... Human beings believe that we are here to protect the church. We are here to protect the stuff in the church. We are here to protect the cash box in the church. If you read Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, the bishop, when he's confronted with a thief, he says, oh my goodness, I apologize I didn't offer these to you earlier. Why didn't I offer these to you earlier? I apologize. When some poor person steals his stuff, he apologizes to the thief. And this is what it is because the bishop in Les Miserables understood that it's not about having nice spoons. <laughs> he gave up the spoons because it's important to feed the poor and not keep nice spoons around. This is the point. Jesus will not fight against 
his oppressors. Jesus allows himself to be eliminated because it's only about the teaching. And the teaching is that God's city will be established. God will bless the way that God blesses, even if it is not visible in human terms, even if it's not clear in human terms, even if it goes against biology, he will fight for his teaching. But how does he fight for his teaching? Granting victory to the kings, what kind of victory were given to the kings? Victory was given to Jesus. Why? Because he was allowed to sit at the right hand of the Father, even when he suffered death at the hands of the worldly powers. And this is what we have to understand as Christians, is that we are here to suffer persecution and if we are being persecuted by the earthly powers, then things are going correctly. If we're failing, if our missions and our churches are not succeeding, it could be because of bad management and irresponsible behavior, but not necessarily. And only God knows the difference. Correct. Human beings cannot see the difference between a parish failing because of human failings or a parish failing because of God's blessing. A parish failing because of something that I know and you know all too well from our experience as leaders. Because you can't win. A program that tries to manage by love can't be successful. I want to say it again because I want everyone to hear it. A program that is managed by love can't be successful. I don't even care if you want to give lip service to tough love. It doesn't work because love ultimately is self-defeating. If you try to take the gospel seriously, you will look like an idiot. This is my point. Some people think that having a community based on love means isn't this a wonderful community? We take care of each other. Everything is nice. We make sure that everyone is well taken care of in our community. Everybody Not, feels welcome. Everyone and feels treasured welcome. And but, blah, blah, blah. But the problem comes because there's a fear inherent in that, and in that what happens if I leave this community? What happens if I mess up and I get shunned from this community? What if I'm what, on the outs? What if I'm on the outs? Then I don't get to enjoy this. They don't say, you know what? We are going to take care of the people outside the community and inside the community. Our community is failing if we don't see love outside our community. And therefore, if you are not taking care of those on the outside, then there is a problem. If there is not love coming from the inside and the outside, it's a problem. You failed by scriptural measures. Perfect love casts out fear. Because the person is afraid to leave the community. Correct. And so people think that's love. The only way you love in a community is say, you come, you come. You leave, you leave. We treat you the same, whether you're in our community, whether you're outside the community, whether you came for a while and then left, whether you came for a day, decided we weren't your type, and then you went on your way, we still love you the same way. And that's what's self-effacing because it cannot build up our community. And those who are on the inside have to be formed so that they don't need to be on the inside and they will never teach that because then there'll be no money in the tray. And this is what frustrates me. And this is my point. I have to deal with money in my secular duties. And I have to deal with money in a very materialistic way. I am not interested in spending hours in the church talking about money that is insignificant to me and immaterial to the effort that we are making in our ministry to serve God's people. And to love regardless of whether they're in or out. In or out according to our perception of what is in or out. Now, we are not going to succeed. That is the point of John 19. 
The institution will never accept this teaching. People will never accept it. You and I will never accept it. But that's why we have to be vigilant. We have to be disciplined. We have to keep studying scripture, keep preaching scripture, and most importantly, preaching against ourselves. Against our own biology. Preaching against our own biology, against our own wants, against our own interests, against the things that benefit us. And if the world looks at us and say, you're hypocrites because you say you don't want it, but yet you're doing it, we say, amen, we're hypocrites. Because I'd rather be reviled as a hypocrite and outcast but at the same time, because I'm exposed as a hypocrite, like the prostitute and the thief in the gospel, and I'm exposed as a failure, and I'm exposed as a fraud, then I would never be in the position of being self-righteous. It's as simple as that. People don't get it. The objective of scripture is to make sure you are never in the position of being self-righteous. It is not to help you figure out what's right. And this is a serious matter, and this is why I shed a tear last Sunday, because everything rests on this question. And it's a question we repeatedly fail in hearing and responding to scripturally. Thanks very much, Richard. Thank you, Father. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.